Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. You're now listening to Bite Into It with Dan and Maze. How are you doing, Maze? I'm doing well. I'm excited for our monthly couch cop games episode again. Absolutely, me too. I'm uh, been looking forward to it all week. I've been a little bit flustered. Um, yeah. I've got a week, uh, sorry, a month off coming up. Oh. Um, so I've uh, just been tying some things up off at work and uh, real busy at the moment. I'm still managing to play 17 hours of video games a day. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's um, yeah, it's a good episode. This uh, this week we got we're talking to Seb Chan from Acme, who's uh, talking about um, Acme acquiring House House's Untitled Goose Game, the much beloved and uh, chaos riddled game uh, yeah. of a goose um, causing havoc around town and uh, honking, honking, honking. Definitely one of the Melbourne things that I'm most proud of. Yeah. yeah. Um, That'll be really interesting. They've done it in partnership with Powerhouse, which is a Sydney tech museum, and other muse- another museum as well, I think. And, yeah, Acme's collecting a fair few video games into their collection. They've been commissioning some smaller games as well. And it's just interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I love that we have that in Melbourne and all of that, like, um, we would have something uh, – so world worldwide respected in in Australia. Yeah, you know? it is really cool. Yeah, uh, and then also I will be doing a game review of Risk of Rain Two. That's uh, the game I've been playing the most recently. Uh, I'm really into it. Uh, hot tip, uh, one of my favourite soundtracks uh, oh, of excellent. all time. Excellent. Um, yeah, but first uh, let's let's hear some news. What's happening in the games business world, Maze? Well, uh, you know we love to chat unionisation here. We do. Um, and Uni Global, which is a organisation that networks a whole heap of unions all around the world and are really active in games, have done a survey which includes over twenty nine, wait, it includes twenty nine countries, um, and the report says that seventy nine percent of games industry workers support unionisation, which is just, which is a massive amount. Is and that is that. A number that you expected, being so close to unionisation yourself? Absolutely not. <laughs> oh, really? I think, you know, as a union worker, I get pretty downtrodden and um, we we deal with so many people who aren't familiar with unions or who only know the rhetoric around they'll ruin your industry and if we all get paid more than minimum wage, there won't be any money left or something. Yeah, right. Um, and so, yeah, I think in Australia, especially the knowledge around unions is so lacking, especially for an industry that has only existed since the seventies when union knowledge started being stripped away in Australia, um, in a pretty yeah. targeted effort, really, to yes. um, weaken unions and stuff. Yeah, yeah but the, the survey shows that uh, 66% experienced low pay, 43% 
faced inadequate benefits and excessive work hours, so not being paid for their overtime. Um, and 35% dealt with workplace discrimination or harassment, um, which is is more than the amount uh, usually of women in games where usually surveyed to be around or, yeah, just under 10%, usually around 8% of workers in games would be women. And so for 35% to be – 35% of the whole workforce to be dealing with discrimination and harassment um, shows that it's not just a women's problem, which is – well, not good. Yeah. Uh (laughs) There's some pretty – yeah, pretty interesting numbers there, you know – and I think it just goes to show that we'll keep banging that unionization drum um, to maybe lower some of those numbers and um, just get a better working environment for um, video games workers. Yeah, and, you know, it's coming. There's just so many um, studios that are that are all unionizing and th- showing really strong density over there over just so many issues, whether it's gender discrimination, whether it's um, underpay and overwork, whether it's being outsourced, whether it's being a contractor instead of an employee. Um, Yeah, can be little things and it can be really big things too. Mm. Um, So it's pretty exciting to see that when you are outside of – the the ground or, you know, when you're not constantly being berated for what you're doing, um, actually it's pretty positive. Yeah. <laughs> it's fantastic. Yeah, it, it's, um, yeah, it's good to see the, the unionisations moving forward. Um, now on to some more news. The uh, Pop Culture Festival South by Southwest is headed to Sydney um, in 2023. Uh, this will be the first time that the festival is headed... Uh, outside of Australia since it launched in Texas in 1987. Um, it's famous for, um, you know, uh, lots of um, innovations and yeah. um, exciting new revelations in technology and um, futurism, as I think they would like to call it. Yeah, um, yeah but it's... Uh, the over three decades, the annual festival has welcomed high-profile high speakers um, spanning Hollywood, politics, technology. Um, it goes from like Barack and Michelle Obama, uh, controversial figure Jordan Peele, uh, director Taika Waititi, uh, musician Lady Gaga. Like the the list goes on. Um, so it's yeah, really cool to see something like that coming to Australia and coming like moving from its original destination for the first time and coming to Australia. Yeah, um, it's a really good, cool. good choice. Come over here. Yeah. Um, it's exciting for the games industry here because it's also what they've announced the date as um, is five days after Melbourne International Games Week, which is our kind of week of games conferences in Australia. Yep. Um, and... So it's kind of like, oh, great, you know, we can all just spend these three weeks showing our games and doing all of the industry things all in three weeks and then we can ignore it for the rest of the year. Yeah, yeah, right. You know? Yeah. Um, Yeah, and also those two events 
being so close together should get more international attention as well. So there's more kind of investment and money and publishers and all of these kinds of yeah. money bringing it down here. Yeah. So it's only a positive for uh, for Australia, really. Yeah. Um, what yeah. else has been I mean, happening? We'll be tired, but it'll be good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Going from a you know festival of um, pitching all your games and all the new ideas and the brilliant technology uh, straight into something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Another one. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be a lot. Yeah. And then we'll all go on retreats for six weeks and not speak to anyone. Sounds good to me. Be done. Um, this news is a little older, but um, I thought it was really cool and it does relate to our previous news. Um, in the last month, Microsoft has signed a labour neutrality agreement with CWA ahead of the Activision Blizzard deal. Um, this is really good news. They've, I mean, it's... It's not the best news, but what they've essentially agreed to is that they won't union bust, um, which is great. Yeah. <laughs> but there's also the uh, it's the difference between what's happening in practice and what they're writing down. Um, a lot of these companies are not known for um, their above-board business tactics, so um, hopefully yeah. they stick to their word and... Um, yeah, they, they leave the unionisation movement alone. Um, but, yeah, it's uh, it's a positive when usually this, this uh, segment can be a little glum, really. Yeah, so, you know, it means that the union movement employees will be given a seat at the table um, during the acquisition of Activision Blizzard uh, and as well as Microsoft's broader video game departments so there's all of xbox um and the different publishers that microsoft already owns it's kind of yeah it's a big deal for a lot of the industry that they've said this yeah um and signed this labor neutrality agreement um but it is it's the first step it's we won't actively union bust but uh we're not going to help you get better benefits I think, no. Yeah, that's, no. <laughs> so, yeah, more steps to go, but we're heading in the right direction. Yeah. 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 All good. Um, we've got a track here from a neat little game. Have you had anything to do with Stray, uh, Maze? I want to save it for when my head isn't full of work. Yeah. Um, and... We were almost going to release Wayward Strand uh, the week, the same week that Stray was going to be released, and so yeah. then we could all just play Stray together. But then we delayed, and now that's not happening. Yeah. So, yeah, Stray will be my September reward. No. Nice. What about you? Uh, I haven't played it yet, but I do like the look of it. I'm not even really sure what the gameplay is. What like I've just seen. Um, just seen cats. Just seen cats. Yeah. Yeah. It, it looks really good. Triple R. You're listening to Bite Into It, where we review games, uh, do video game news and interviews with video game professionals. Um, right now I'm going to be reviewing Risk of Rain 2, which is a game that I've been... Uh, smashing is the right word. I've been playing <laughs> a lot of it. Um, it's a... All right. Uh, uh, a roguelike... Uh, just a roguelike game, I think, is the... the like, it's... 
one of the first games, Risk of Rain 1, was one of the first games in this roguelike renaissance, I would say. So yeah, right. it's made by Hopu Games, which is a, a duo um, out of America. Um, and it was a. It started as a 2D platformer or the first game was a 2D mm. platformer where you get different characters and uh, you're crashed on this planet. Uh, you have to get through all these um, enemies uh, to a teleporter. You activate the teleporter, you fight a boss. Once you fought the boss... Um, you can activate the teleporter again. It takes you to the next stage, uh, and there's five levels. Uh, and it's got like a really unique style, like a lot of roguelikes do, where you pick up an item, that item changes your character model in some small way, uh, and then you inherit the effects of that uh, that item. Um, it's yeah, fantastic. I've been playing a lot of it. As far as roguelikes go, where balance is concerned, because um, balance is often a an issue with roguelike games where one item is the item to have above all else. And yeah, just once you get that, that's you, it. You've and won if, the game. If you don't manage to get that, then restart. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's uh, essentially a problem a lot of uh, roguelikes have. Not so much with Risk of Rain 2. Um, there are, there's items in varying uh, levels. So there's white, which is common, and the green, rare. Mm. Um, you know, the common... Uh, the um, industry standard colour yeah. as a form of how good an item is um, rarity. Uh, and, yeah, it's uh, it's really well balanced. It's got a really interesting um, visual look to it as well. And, like, the items don't necessarily correspond to what you would think they do or they're, like, they're, you can get a ukulele. A ukulele yeah. may be the item that is most associated with it because on the cover art of the game... Um, a character, the the commando, or just a guy wearing, uh, you know, a Morgan Freeman esque sure. spacesuit. Um, he's playing a ukulele, and that what that does is uh, chains lightning between enemies, so you hit an oh, enemy, right. and uh, you can get like fifty uh, percent damage on other enemies around as it chains around. And uh, I suppose you're playing the music of the particles of the air, or something vibrating. Yeah, maybe. The- that's, Pure energy. Yeah, that's a. I mean, I feel like that's a long bow to draw. Okay, but <laughs> that's like that's more than I could have thought of why it does that. <laughs> Maybe it's like the music's electric, more something more metaphorical. But um, it just goes to show that like the items uh, aren't necessarily, or they they may have a backstory that I don't understand. Um, I haven't read any of the flavor text for any of the items. Otherwise, I'd be there all day. There's something like 150 items and some of them some of them are active items as well which you can switch out as you go right. you can only hold one active item at a time um and they all do various different things um uh yeah the art style's really basic as well like a i i need to understand art styles a little better cuz it's not it's not cell shaded but it's almost like a monotone um style of coloring and artwork where it's like uh, shadows aren't in gradients. They're just like hard. Oh, yeah, they're just like flat. Yeah. and yeah. It, So you get this like look of shadows. It's almost like a digital painting came to life kind of thing. Mm. Um, if that ended like really muted, uh, really muted colors, like a lot of purples and um, beiges and... Um, yeah, interesting. Yeah. Um, and muted colors so like has that. it moved from... 2D side on into 3D. Yes, uh, that was. Person. That's another thing. It's like the the elements and items in the game and the like the level design, other than the fact that it's in 3D, all very similar. Like the objective mm. is exactly the same. You've got to get to a teleporter, beat a boss, 
um, and get to the final level, which is five levels in. Um, and yeah, the like the items are all the same. It's just they've it's literally like they've added a dimension. Um, yeah, right. You talked uh, a few episodes ago about how um, it's a common joke among developers that you just <laughs> flick a switch and turn on multiplayer. Yeah. It, fe- it feels a little bit like they just turned, flicked the switch and turned on the third dimension. Like, uh, <laughs> obviously that's not true. There's a lot of work that's gone into it and there's a lot of, um, there's constant updates and they've had a few um, uh, expansions as well. Oh, so that's cool. Um, yeah, they, it seems like they're, they're taking care of the community. They really listen to the community. They're f- um, active on their Reddit um, yeah. How long was it between Risk of Rain 1 2D side-on and Risk of Rain 2, which is like, it seems like a pretty immersive 3D huge world? Yeah, uh, probably like seven years. Mm. So the it was, I think, Risk of Rain 1, if I'm not mistaken, was released in, uh, I get... Uh, 2009 or 2011. Now yeah, right. I'm confused myself. Um, but then Risk of Rain 2 was released in 2020. Um, and so it's been out for two years and they've had a couple of updates. Uh, it was made by, like I said, Hopu Games, which are a couple of guys from um, the US. Uh, since the making of the first one and the uh, making of the second one in the middle there, they made a game called Deadbolt, which was like a... You play as death, and you're but you're eliminating vampires, zombies, ghouls, and oh, other monsters. And it's, it's, it's like, like cleaning up because they because they were alive yeah, and this, then they died yeah, and came yeah, back. Yeah, yeah, cle- gotta... cleaning, killing the undead, or like ah, taking back the undead. But you're like that's kind, a cool concept. kind of like a suave hitman. Like you're oh yeah, um, you're wearing like a turtleneck sweater and like <laughs> a, a beige jacket, but you've got guns. And you pick up. It's it's a little bit like a puzzle game shooter like you've got to enter a building not get shot yourself like one shot kills you yeah, and right. um so it's like it's interesting that they went from uh the risk of rain one two dimensions um deadbolt which is like a shooter puzzler um mm. two dimensions and then into risk of rain two three dimensions and it's um like i really enjoyed risk of rain one it's um when i first got my uh, very first gaming computer it was one of the first games i got on steam um put a lot of hours into it loved it um and it's got a really unique art style and feel to it so it's um and they've just managed to capture that again with this game um i will mention the soundtrack i mentioned it earlier at the introduction to the show uh the soundtrack is done by chris chris totalu uh a guy from Greece who's um, made other soundtracks for other games, worked in... Yeah, um, I think we've played a bit of his. Yeah, because yeah. I play him a lot because he's yeah, yeah, my yeah. favourite. Um, and it uh, does an, an excellent job, a lot like um, Mick Gordon with Doom where he mm. took the source material and was able to incorporate it and then expand upon it. Um, I mean, that's coming from uh, another musical source, but Chris Kodaloo is working on his own um, reiteration, um, but manages to take a lot of stuff from the original and then expand upon that and and then create all new music from that as well. Um, It's a, like, I I would, I listen to this soundtrack like on the way to work or um, like while I'm gaming, I'll I'll sometimes turn off another game soundtrack (gasps) and put that one on. Um, Heretic. Just, yeah. Just have it around the house. It it really is a, a fantastic soundtrack. And so has, has much of the aesthetic changed then from the 2D to the 3D? Like have they well, introduced an orchestra or like, you know, is that... It's still the same um, 
compositional tools, I guess. Yeah, I, yeah. yeah, I this is where my ability to explain <laughs> things breaks down. I'm, I'm not a technical musical person in any That's regard, okay. so it sounds the same, um, yeah. but more expansive. It doesn't have cool. any different instruments or, um, but like same tone and pitching. Is yeah. that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. cool, cool. <laughs> yeah. Right, that's awesome. Um, yeah, it's a yeah, fantastic video game and the like. I will bring up the items again because the items yeah. have just like been brought over from the other game. There's like a shark tooth necklace where you can um, like heal yourself, and then there's a goat hoof. It's called P- Paul's goat hoof, which I'm I'm imagining Who's is one. Paul? I'm imagining they're one of the creators of the game, <laughs> um, uh, which makes you run faster. And there's like th- three or four different categories of items. So there's like speed items, healing items, damage items. You know, mm. it's um, it's. It would be familiar to anyone who's played a roguelike game. Um, and if you haven't played a roguelike game, it, I will say it's it's on the more difficult end. Although mm. actually, no, that's just me. I've just been playing the more dif- the most difficult setting. So it does have a more <laughs> forgiving... Yeah, I should say that up front. The, the, you can choose difficult setting and then there's other game modes, uh, which is one's called Eclipse, which... Uh, you get up to Eclipse 8, so you have to beat the game eight times with every character. So I think there's oh, wow. uh, 12 characters, maybe not that many, maybe 10 characters. Um, they all feel different. They all have different abilities and movesets. And um, you have to beat this Eclipse mode eight times or you know, while constantly ramping it up um, to get to Eclipse 8 with all of them. Have uh, you done that yet? No, I, I'm only playing it just on hard. I haven't even touched these game modes yet. Yeah. Um, but that's cool that there's different characters because I think I find myself, I really like, I kind of find that as part of the accessibility is catering for different play styles. Yeah. And like, you know, being able to have a little bit of a like, okay, I understand some strategies and so I'll try to stick with those and expand out a little bit. Or, yeah. You know, I'm good at tanking and just button mashing, but running at things and bashing them or yeah. I'm good at um, resource management or yeah. you know, those yeah. kinds of... Well, another good aspect is that it's uh, up to four-player cooperative multiplayer. So oh. um, if you wanted, you could get this game with your friends and um, play. And because the items enhance your character, there's, there's characters which lend themselves to those archetypes of mm. healing, uh, damage or support. Um, or tanking, sorry. And uh, like there are characters, yeah, that are more aligned with one of those, but not so much that you can't build them in a different way with different items. And That's cool. Yeah. And there's a certain element of uh, chance every time you pick up an item. So you can't see what item you're going to get. It's just a chest. You have to open up the chest and it gives you a random item. Um, there's ways to like curate your items. Like you have, there's uh, 3D printers on yeah. maps, which like it just has one single item that it prints, and you've got to scrap items to print items. So, yeah, right. or you can just 3D print, and it will take one of your items at random, which is not a good strategy if you're like going for a yeah. very specific build. Um, yeah, there's a lot of uh, strategic depth in there as well, like individually and with a team if you're going to be playing. Uh, with four people. That's cool. Yeah. Is it online? Uh, yeah, online, yeah, cool. um, up to four people. I highly recommend it. Uh, two thumbs up for, for me. I don't nice. generally like to do ratings, um, but two thumbs up will do yep. uh, for now. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
yeah, that's the review of Risk of Rain 2. So uh, we'll play a track now. I won't dive into any more Chris Chris Totaloo. I was going to do that, but I've yeah. been playing so much of them uh, over the last few That's all right. Episodes. I hope they, hope they get the broadcast royalties sent over from Australia. Yeah, that's it. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. ACME, the National Film and Sound Archive of Australia and the Powerhouse, have announced joint acquisition of the smash hit video game Untitled Goose Game, which we all love. Uh, this acquisition ensures that it's going to be preserved for decades to come using the specialist skills and approaches of each institution. And on the line we have Seb Chan, who is Chief Experience Officer at ACME in Melbourne, to chat about what this actually means. Welcome to the show, Seb. Hey, how are you? We're doing really well. How are you going? Yeah, pretty good, you know. Pretty good dinner and all the rest. Good, good times. Yeah. I'm much better now that you've got uh, an untitled goose came uh, your hands on that as well now, I imagine. So much better. Yeah. So much better. <laughs> <laughs> so what does it mean for a museum to acquire it? I mean, we all have copies and yep. House House yep. still owns it. So yep. what does it mean? So what it what it really means is that it will be preserved for the long term. So one of the things I think, you know, as some, someone who grew up with with early video games, a lot of the games that I had as a kid, um, you know, you can't get anymore. Um, companies go out of business um, and all those memories are lost. Um, and also the media deteriorates. So, you know, if you think, think, think about the lifespan of media that you buy now, like a, you know, Blu-ray, a game on a Blu-ray disc, that'll last, you know, maybe 10 kind of years if it's kept pretty, pretty well. But soon those, uh, physical media will disappear too and will only have, um, games as a service, right? Uh, or, or, or streamed or rented mm. titles. So it becomes really important for us to be exploring ways to uh, work at the speed of game makers and to, to, be pre- to, to be thinking about preserving things almost as soon as things are made. Uh, what Watch was really great about um, House House, of course, was, uh, you know, this, this acquisition process has been going on for quite a while. In fact, it's been a, sort of a two-year project uh, across, uh, three in- of, uh, across three institutions, which allows us to think about what it is that is preserved. So we are preserving the first, uh, the first commercial build, uh, the concept kind of drawings, the, brain- uh, the brainstorming documents, um, the Git, the Git commit log, so all of the Great. commits that were in the code. So a future uh, person studying video game making or how video games were made in the early 21st century or you know, this era of the 21st century can look at the choices that uh, House, House, um, House House made at that particular time. Now, of course, future versions will come out. Um, and future versions of the current current version will come out, bug fixes and other things, DLCs, all those extra things that come with games now. But what we will have is the 
the first release, plus all of the documentation around that, plus also, you know, how it felt to play it, the publicity materials, walkthroughs, all of that sort of stuff that feels persistent now, but five years, 10 years, 20 years starts to disappear from the places we think are permanent. You know, we think about uh, YouTube as a place to store videos as a somewhat permanent thing, but... But things vanish, you know. Um, things are not as persistent as they appear to be, and that's what museums are very, very good at, is, you know, asserting persist, uh, persistence and committing to that very, very long preservation arc. Speaking of commits, I really hope that student in 100 years isn't still using Git. I think that would break my heart. Well, yes. Uh, true. <laughs> true enough. True enough. But, so, you know, I think it's really fascinating to read, you know, some of the other... Uh, pieces of soft software that museums have collected, including ours. Um, those commits kind of logs are full of uh, hilarious chatter and comments from mm. the developers, you know, and it's it's part of cap- capturing the social making of that game too. It's not just a piece of soft software that emerges in the in the world as a as a fully fully formed commercial product or art, artistic product. There's a lot of um, culture that that, yeah. that that is made during that process. I'll have to tell one of my workplaces that who has told me to stop shitposting in the git commits. Um, <laughs> uh, do you preserve other things like um, I remember when Goose Game came out and the launch party had a whole heap of um, badges, for example, mm. with the goose on it. Um, and I remember... Marigold Bartlett also did a big, beautiful map of the entire place for the mm. Switch launch. Do you have, like, those kinds of peripherals, I suppose? We've been in discussions about the paraphernalia, the publicity mm. materials and all of those those other things, which are very much part of the culture around the game that House House was part of, but also what players uh, were part of too. So we're trying to also capture... Some of the comment, the commentary about the um, about the impact of the game at uh, the time, and also, of course, during the during the pan uh, pan the pan pandemic, which of course the game was really important for actually bringing many of us through that, right? Yeah, mm. absolutely. Um, so, um, what processes are involved in preserving um, this? Like, is there a lot of um, is there a schedule for like, oh, we've got We've got it on this one hard drive. Are we moving it to a new, um, to like data on a on a some kind of food cracker that we've envisioned in the future for storing information? Uh, I don't know. Like the future is uh, vague and messy. But is, uh, what uh, yeah. what's the preservation arc on something like this? Look, you know that that's what's interesting too about this is that's also why we are working with the NFSA and also the Powerhouse um, Museum because each each of us have different specialisations in uh, preserving different types of material. So the Powerhouse has an amazing design archive collection and they are experts at preserving and interpreting design doc, you know, documentation in all uh, sorts of formats, from paper through to you know, um, uh, dig, you know, digital files that are drawing, drawing files, where we, we perhaps are more uh, specialised in... Um, uh, media preservation of uh, physical discs um, and also that gameplay piece and interpreting the, cult- the cultural effects of the game. 
And the NFSA, of course, is the long-term archive in Australia that, that commits to, like, the thousand kind of year view. Um, and they um, have been looking at how to store and and continue to mi- you know, migrate the um, uh, media as the media ages. Um, so, yeah, look, and also for us, of course, this, this fits into video games as almost like a pilot for other forms of contemporary art, a lot of contempor- a lot of contemporary art now is also software based, and we might um, not see the software because it's not in, it doesn't have a screen or an interface, but it's developed with, and the art itself is is reliant on soft software. Let's let's say so. This is also a great great way of these three institutions working through and developing those uh, those processes because those processes are not defined or static. And, in fact, one of the long challenge, challenge, uh, challenges with Goose, uh, Goose Game and why it's taken um, uh, what feels like a longer, longer, longer time, but in the arc of museums is actually a very short time, is working through all the challenges of acquiring soft software, which is built on and uses third-party third frameworks and mm. soft software libraries that were not created by House House. So, for example, Unity or other things. So, so the dependencies of the software itself uh, become a challenge for future for future preservation and use. Is it? Does that mean that you have to get like special consideration from these companies to preserve and exhibit this kind of stuff? Uh, look, we would argue not. Uh, we would argue as a museum that is not the case. But you can see how that is immediately a little bit of a grey area. Yeah, mm. it's not clear, um, and you could say that's that's common to most other contemporary creative pra- practices. So you know, if you think about some of the other things that more traditional museums have preserved or libraries have preserved, uh, Jermaine Dupri's laptop, uh, mm. Timothy Leary's laptop, you know, lap, lap, laptop. In fact, is in the um, uh, New York Public Library. Um, these uh, captured op- operating systems with the file structure and browsing that allows you to get a glimpse into their um, creative cr- creative practice. And in uh, the, Timoth- uh, the Timothy Leary case, they actually found a bunch of things that he had made that no one knew he'd made that were sitting on his laptop. So, you know, it's like... Sometimes that archival practice, uh, which I think we're going to see more more of in the future, um, it's starting to spread. And so video games are a nice contained way of us exploring that space. And just it's kind of fun too. And, you know, I think it's also really, really important that um, significant games like uh, Goose, Goose Game do have a visible life, you know, that goes... 50 years plus in the kind of to the future. So when people think think about the early 20, you know, the 2010s to 2020 period in Australian games, it's not difficult to find. Mm. And what what uh, makes a game worthy of consideration for um, for preservation? Like uh, there there must be yeah. some hard decisions that have to be made on what. Um, yeah. What requires effort and um, how to go about it? Yeah, look, it's 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 really the same as muse, uh, muse, museums assess 
significance in in many different ways. Uh, but I think um, Goose 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 Game was pretty pretty clearly and very inf, 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 influential and important uh, moment uh, defining title that was pretty pretty obvious um, was worth the effort to preserve. And of course, House House was incredibly generous in working with us. This uh, doesn't happen. The, muse, uh, the museum doesn't just acquire things. This is a very um, joint, 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 joint process. And House 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 was incredibly gen, uh, generous in making a lot of things that I think a lot of other developers would have been a little like, ah, oh, not really sure about that, or just wait, wait another ten, uh, ten years. You know that kind of vibe. Yeah. So, but but there was something unique about the opportunity to work with the team whilst the game is still, you know, it's still hot. People mm. are still buying it. That you know, it's been ported to lots of other platforms, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, it's a living thing now. So, I think that's that's really that that's an interesting opportunity. And of course, there's lots of other games that we also collect. Um, we've uh, just been we're just finishing up a. Three three year research project with um, Swinburne and RMIT University preserving um, Australian video games from the 1990s, which you can see in our galleries now. There's six of them playable play, playable in our galleries now. Oh, that's awesome! I think about 50 that we've collected, including uh, one of the very early AFL games and uh, cricket games, and Xena uh, the Warrior Princess, which is like. What really? Yes, it's kind of cool, right? So the AFL one is that the yeah. one on the Nintendo, Nintendo. Entertainment? Yeah, and oh yeah. That uh, the umpire's head comes up on the screen and says "out of bounds" on the full constantly. That is it. Yeah, that I've got it. that's yeah. in my head. Like me and my brother say that to to each other <laughs> all the time because um, we didn't know what we were doing. They're just like little pixels on a screen kicking a ball yeah. to one another, and then uh, yeah, we didn't know what we were doing, so we'd kick it out all the time. It's just the umpire going like, "out of bounds" on the full. On the full. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. So, so like that, 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 that game, because we've had to come back to it so late, you know, 20 years later, 25, 25 years later, it's a much harder job than if we'd been able, been able to do it, you know, in 1998, 99. Mm. Do you have any, like, you know, when I think of games that are hard to preserve, I think mm. of browser-based games and flash games yep do you have any games like that and like how do you stop windows from updating so that you can still yeah play it? <laughs> so museums are pretty good at that you know uh we are pretty good at um uh, pausing time that's what we mm. do with objects um but also we've, you know, as, as part of this research project with our, our, our MIT and Swindon, we've been developing, uh, working with this uh, soft, soft, software called EAAS, which, is em- which, which does emulation, but as a service. Yeah, um, right, so, cool. so these sort of virtual, virtual machines spin up these games. And really the next phase of that, and this is where things start getting really hard, is the early 2000s, so the beginning of games that require a live internet a network to run and so that's that's actually where it gets really hard so how uh, does a a museum preserve world of warcraft how does museum how does a museum preserve any of those like you know fortnite or anything that requires 
um, you know, server-based games, basically. So, so, so browser, browser-based is comparatively straightforward compared to ones that require, you know, in quotes, the internet. Um, but that's that's sort of what I think we're working up uh, to, and I think over for the next decade you'll see a lot of progress in um, that space, and also, of course, with uh, you know, mobile game and emulation of iOS and other. Uh, platforms too. Awesome. Um, Seb, where can people uh, check out these amazing new artifacts that you've got your hands on? Just on our website, www.acmi.net.au slash works, or if you just go to the home of a page, you can find video games there, and you can come in and play them. Like, as I say, you can come in to play that AFL game. Yeah. That'll be on show probably for another couple of months but we're i think we're going to turn over some new titles there soon too as well so oh, you're probably in, in the free exhibition and, you know yeah in the free exhibition story the moving image i'll have to federation square. kick the ball around at federation square with my brother then bring him in definitely yeah um seb thanks so much for coming on the show and um yeah letting us know about the the process of preserving all these wonderful titles yeah no worries eh? cheers thank you very much triple r on this show, we've had uh, my Risk of Rain uh, review, which I think went pretty good. Um, that look- was a great review. I'm really looking forward to going home and playing it again. It's uh, renewed my, my lust for playing Risk of Rain 2. Uh, and then uh, right after that, we had an interview with Seb Chan, the Chief Experience Officer at Acme in Melbourne, about uh, preserving House House's Untitled Goose Game and preserving uh, video games and especially Australian video games in general. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into It's Twitter or Facebook accounts.